you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And if you can turn to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament without looking at the table of contents, you probably should be standing up here preaching. It's not an easy book to find uh, in the Old Testament. Um, so, you know, no shame in looking in the table of contents. I do that as well. I know many of you uh, like to read your Bibles or follow along um, on your uh, cellular mobile device or a, a, a tablet. That's fine, too. But do want to encourage you to uh, be bringing your Bibles each and every week uh, to worship as we gather together. So as Jeff mentioned at the top of our, our service, uh, we are actually coming down the home stretch of a 34-week sermon series called Blessed to be a Blessing. We could have easily called it gifted uh, to give. And the idea, of course, is that God has uh, blessed each one of us. God has given each one of us some things, in fact, many things, uh, not for our own personal edification, uh, but to share with others in the world. And we've been using this book, Discover Your Gifts, uh, as we've gone through this journey together, looking at 17 Old Testament characters and 17 New Testament characters. And so we're in the Old Testament today looking at Nehemiah. And uh, as we're looking, going, kind of going around this wheel of different gifts, uh, we are on the last gift in the book, uh, the gift of teamwork. And when I first read this, I'm like, is that a gift? Is that really a thing? I mean, I mean, I, I guess it's maybe a gift. I'm not sure. Um, but the more I thought about it uh, and the more kind of uh, I uh, read about it, and this is what our authors say about the gift of teamwork. Teamwork gifts help you effectively collaborate and work with and work alongside others. I thought, you know, I've been on teams before that are not super great with collaboration and working alongside uh, one another. I think we can probably, some of you are nodding your heads. Um, you know, what a disaster that is to be on a team. And so, yeah, it's important uh, for all of us. And, and on the other hand, I've been a part of some really effective teams, teams that really do collaborate together. And isn't that just fun to be a part of a team that really works together? And so I'm gonna put this, uh, this gift of uh, teamwork kind of under the all skate category. I think this is a category for all of us. All of us are invited to lean in because after all, we are the church and it's important for us to get along, to work together, to collaborate and work effectively together. And as Jeff said at the top of the service, uh, we are looking at this Old Testament uh, guy by the name of Nehemiah who very creatively wrote the book of Nehemiah. And I'm calling this sermon Ingredients for Teamwork. Ingredients for Teamwork uh, by Nehemiah, if you will. All right, so if you're in Nehemiah, let us pray. God, we thank you for uh, time together this morning to worship you, to serve you, and to just be reminded again, God, that you dwell in our midst. And God, um, this idea of teamwork is so important to you. And so God, help us to just develop that sense of urgency this morning as we listen to God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. You are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in a few weeks, I will be celebrating a birthday. And at our house, nobody will ask me what kind of birthday cake I want. Everybody knows. 
Because years ago when people would ask me, my wife, and, and then later on my kids, hey dad, uh, what kind of birthday cake you want? My answer was always, hello, there is only one kind of birthday cake. It's called a red cake. And it actually goes back to when I was a child and I would visit my grandmother in Northwest Iowa. Now you gotta know that my grandmother, uh, she was not only a farm wife, but she was a cook, a chef, a baker guru. She actually majored in home economics when she went to college. And oh, could my grandma cook. And oh, does my wife not like to hear about my grandma's cooking, <laughs> right? I've, I've, I've learned on that side. But when I was a kid, I would go to my grandma's and sometimes she would be um, in the kitchen listening to kitchen clatter writing, handwriting recipes on the radio. And uh, so it was just fun. It was kind of the environment. And she was always cooking, always baking something in the kitchen. Well, one year, um, uh, I learned, I discovered about the red cake. And the story behind the red cake, uh, according to folklore, goes something like this, that back in the 1950s, long, long before I was born, uh, Pillsbury uh, had a bake-off. And this bake-off, uh, it was a contest. And whoever won the bake-off got like $1,000 or something like that. A lot of money back in the 1950s. So a lot of these recipes for cakes was submitted. So sometime in the 1950s of that decade, this red cake was the grand prize winner. And through the years, I've just fallen in love with this cake. Now, I know some of you are sitting here thinking to yourself, oh, I've had that cake. That's red velvet cake. To which I would say, no. It's not red velvet cake. Because through the years, I have tried many, many, many red cakes. People will say to me, oh, I, oh I've got a really good red velvet cake uh, recipe or from this bake shop. You got to try it. I'll try it. I'm like, mm, not even close. Not even close. My grandma's red cake recipe that she, you know, got, you know, from this national prize. It is a cake like no other. And I've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe through the years with other people who claim that their red velvet cake is as good. It's not, it's not even in the same category. You, you don't even put those two things in the same sentence. This red cake is so out of this world. It's so amazing. My mouth is watering right now as we speak. Just thinking about it. And the important thing you need to know about the red cake is, is through the years, every now and then, we're short on an ingredient. Every now and then, we deviate from the recipe. And every time that happens, it doesn't taste the same. And, and I'll vocalize, ah, no, that's not it. You missed something. You missed an ingredient, and it takes two full bottles of red food coloring. My mom admitted to me on the phone yesterday that every now and then she would cheat and do one bottle of food coloring, and uh, she would just add a little bit of water. Totally ruins the cake. And there's only about 17 ingredients uh, in the red cake. And it's the ingredients but it's also the process. You have to do them in the right order at the right time. 
And it is amazing, and I'm not going to share the recipe with you this morning. But I share that story with you this morning, because really, in many ways, this is the story of Nehemiah. All these people are involved at exactly the right time throughout time in history, led to the events, led to what is going to happen with the renewal of God's people in the life of the church. But it's got to be the certain people, it's got to be the right people, and they got to happen in the right order at the right time. So let me prepare the kitchen for you. Let me set the stage as we think about these ingredients in the life of Nehemiah. 500 years before Nehemiah walked on the stage of human history, it was the golden age for Israel. King David had conquered all the surrounding area. There they were in the promised land. Things could not have been better. They were powerful. They were wealthy. They had great influence on everyone around them. It was the absolute best of times for the nation of Israel. And God said to David, hey, I want you to build a temple, but you're not going to build a temple. Your son is going to build a temple. And the temple is going to be that place where God's people meet with God, and it's going to be in Jerusalem. So this is 500 years before, and so after King David comes King Solomon. And so King Solomon, we've read this story together, I know, and we've talked about it. He builds the temple in Jerusalem. It was the most incredible place ever. But the problem with King Solomon was that he was a sinner. He liked the ladies. And King Solomon had many, many relationships. And no matter how many times God told Solomon, don't interact, don't marry other women outside of the tribe of Israel. If you do, there will be consequences. And I talked about this sin cycle last week. Remember that? Whenever God's people, us, sin, there are consequences. You know this, right? You know this from Scripture, but you know this in your own life. Whenever God's people, whenever anyone sins, whenever anyone is outside of God's law and rules and boundaries, there are going to be consequences. And so the consequences for God's people, the Israelites, as the, your, your mind should be flashing, oh, sin cycle's beginning, and so the sin cycle starts. And there begins to become consequences for Solomon's unfaithfulness and, and uh, marrying these other women who, by the way, were worshiping other gods. And pretty soon Solomon's heart was far from God as well. So the first consequence was the nation divides Israel up in the north and Judah down in the south. And so this, this once great nation under David and Solomon gets torn apart. And all of a sudden, it's uh, 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. But it gets worse. And the, the consequences just keep getting worse and worse. And we see this over and over in Scripture. And so what's going on more and more is, is that the people around them, are there's more uh, problems and conflict. And pretty soon an army from far away, from Assyria comes. And I put it up on the map there for you so you can kind of see. They come in and they invade Israel and they conquer Israel. The northern, this northern part that we know as Israel. And they take the people in Israel and they cart them off and they make them slaves. So things are just getting bad and going worse and worse. And pretty soon, after some time, Judah gets conquered by the Babylonians. 
And there you can see uh, Babylon there up on the map. And so they come over and they now conquer the city of Jerusalem. They conquer this, this region, the, the other two tribes. They conquer Judah. And what they, what they do the same thing is they, they take the people, the Israelites, and they cart many of them off into slavery back in Babylon. And Babylon, of course, today is what we know as Iraq. And so there they are, miserable. Now we are down here in the sin cycle. They have kind of reached rock bottom. But after a few years, the Persians actually conquer the Babylonians. And it's a hint of grace. That even when God's people are so low, when things are so bad, that God can use these other external circumstances, God uses the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. And, and there's still many of the slaves, the Israelites. There they are in Babylon. There they are in Persia. And they are miserable. But in this moment, there's, there's this idea of hope and this wonder, maybe things are going to get better. And when their city was overrun, Jerusalem was overrun, they didn't just take the people away, but they knocked down the temple. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the walls leading all around Jerusalem. We know this, of course, as the exile, the Babylonian exile. They, they were gone for about 70 years. And uh, what I like to kind of explain this uh, for, for parents especially, Israelites' exile is kind of like when you had kids and they misbehave. What do you do? Spank them. No, you put them in time out, right? Well, maybe you spank them. I don't know. We spanked our kids there. Still working through therapy on all that, but that's, that's another sermon. But this is what God did. Is God said, hey, you guys have been misbehaving. You've been disobedient. You're going to time out. So God took the Israelites, many of the Israelites, and put them in time out in this place that we know as Babylon. Well, the good news is uh, in, the, in the midst of uh, things getting really, really bad, there's, there's hope, there's expectation, and there are promises, and God sends prophets to remind the Israelites that God's not finished with them yet. So there's lots of repentance. There's lots of opportunity for people to kind of figure out what do we need to do. So the Persians, they allow three different waves of Israelites to go back. To go back to Jerusalem, to go back to the promised land, to go back to what we know as the Holy Land. And so these, there's these three waves in all total, about 50,000 Israelites return back to Jerusalem. They return back to Judah. And I like to think of these waves as, as God's grace. They don't deserve it, but God allows them to go back. And, and so the first wave happens about 100 years before Nehemiah. Then the second wave happens, more people, and, and Ezra, an Old Testament prophet, you probably know that name or have heard that name, he goes with the second wave, and then Nehemiah is going to be in the third wave. So I kind of wanted to just, you know, get the kitchen in order so you could kind of see where all the ingredients and these really important people and the details that sometimes get fuzzy in our heads to understand. So in 446 B.C., 446 B.C., there is Nehemiah. He's still back in uh, slavery. He is in, uh, back in Persia. He is back in Babylon. He's back in that region where people are still slaves. He was born a slave. 
He's never been to Jerusalem. He's never been to the Holy Land. He's in exile with many of the uh, other Israelites. And there he is. And one day he gets a report. Somebody has come back from Jerusalem. And the report is this. Hey, things are really bad in Jerusalem. Even though a hundred plus years has passed since the first wave of people were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, they haven't really fixed things. It's still a mess. And so as he listens more and more to this report, Nehemiah sits down and he weeps. He's absolutely broken hearted for this nation. It's very perplexing, I find, this place that he has never been. He's so sad. The Jerusalem and the temple are still uh, in shambles. And so he weeps and he prays. And he prays, and he prays. This morning, I just want to lift up to you one of the most important parts of Nehemiah's life, or the first ingredient, is prayer. And I don't know how your prayer life works, but sometimes I get impatient in my prayers. I'll pray on Monday, and I'll be like, hey God, I need an answer by Friday. Anybody else? Nehemiah prays and he weeps and he's on his knees for four months. The next time you're feeling a little impatient with God, remember Nehemiah and the importance of just keep at it. Keep going. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers for years and years and years. I know I've been praying for certain people in certain circumstances for years and God still has not answered my prayers. God doesn't work on our timetable. But God uses prayer. Prayer is a central ingredient in Nehemiah's life. And, and I think it's an important part in all of our lives as we think about what it means uh, to be a follower of Jesus. So he's praying and praying. He's weeping and weeping. And one day he's having a conversation with the king. And the king looks at him. He says, you know what, Nehemiah? There's something wrong with you. Are you okay? And Nehemiah's like, Actually, I'm not okay. My heart is so heavy. I'm so heartbroken that my people, the Israelites, back in Jerusalem, things are a mess, king. So they have this conversation that goes back and forth. And you got to understand that Nehemiah, uh, in, in relationship to the king, he was the cupbearer, which meant that he was in a position, even though he was a slave, he was in a position of power. He was in a position of authority. He was in a position of comfort. He probably lived, you know, and he got to eat all the king's meals. And if they weren't poisoned, he got to live. So he was eating pretty good. And he got to be around the king and have this regular conversation or dialogue, or at least in the presence of the king. Nehemiah had a really, really good life. And I find it very perplexing that he would say to the king, Hey, king, I want to go back. He makes this request to leave everything that's comfortable, everything that's uh, uh, convenient in his life, and says, I want to leave and go someplace 900 miles away to a place that's a mess. That's his request. I want to leave it all. I want to leave the privilege and go with my people back in Jerusalem. And I think this is the second ingredient in Nehemiah's life. It's, it's simply God's 
call. God's call to Nehemiah is, Nehemiah, I want you to leave all that you know, all that's comfortable, all that's familiar, and go to a place that's uncomfortable, unfamiliar. And you guys know this. Nehemiah, I want you to step out of your comfort zone. And so sometimes I think as we're discerning our call in life and, and where God would have us to go, oftentimes, most of the time, I find that it's out of our comfort zone. It's places we've never been. You know, I was praying to God uh, many years ago, Lord, I'll go anywhere in the world you want me to go in ministry, uh, but high on the list are St. Martin, St. John, and St. Lucia. I'm willing to go there, Lord. Sacrifice. Send me to the Caribbean. I'm okay with that. Oh, no. Bloomington, Illinois. God has a sense of humor, right? I mean, how many times do you give God your, your list of, you know, what you want, and God's like, good one. God sends us to the craziest of places and says, I want you to go. And I, I just got to stop here for just a second and say, God's calling is not just for professional Christians. It's not just for, for pastors or, or professional people in the life of the church. Nehemiah was not a professional church guy. He was not a priest. He was not a prophet. He was a government official. He just punched the clock, did his job. He was the cupbearer to the king. So if you think God cannot call you into ministry, you haven't read scripture. God calls all people into ministry, and he invites us to do his work. So the king says, okay, you can go. You can travel 900 miles back to Jerusalem, back to that hot mess of a place that you've never been before, and the reports are things are really, really bad. So Nehemiah travels back, again, in the third wave, back to Jerusalem. He gets there, and he's like, whoa, this is bad. It's even worse than what I thought. And he, he walks around the city of Jerusalem. He assesses the situation. And then we get to Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 17. And Nehemiah writes in the first person. He wrote this. Then I said to them, meaning those around him, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So Nehemiah assesses the situation. He says, guys, it's bad. It's really bad. Look around you. It's horrible. We got to do something. Nehemiah throws out the third ingredient, and it's this whole idea of he casts vision. He says, guys, this is what the problem is. And, we, and, and this isn't just the problem, but we got to do something about it. So he doesn't just cast vision, but he also says it's a call to action. It's a call to do something. Many years ago, I was on a, a church committee uh, of, of a bunch of pastors, and uh, we were trying to figure out how to do some ministry. And one of the pastors had an idea and uh, after this person went on for a while, I said, hey, that's a great idea. Do you want to have that up? And they said, no, I'm just an ideas person. I'm like, really? Because we need idea people and not just people, you know, to actually do the work. I never really paid any attention to that person ever again. 
Because it's, it's a call to action, right? We've got to do something. Everybody needs to do something. So what Nehemiah is proposing is he casts this vision. Come, let us rebuild the wall. Now, we're, we're probably thinking here this morning a couple of things. Well, how big was this wall? So let me give you a scope of the wall. The wall was two and a half miles around. So what I did is I went to Google Maps and I found out that if we were to walk out the doors here and walk straight down uh, GE till it turns into Vernon, keep going to Main Street, turn just a little bit to the right, we'd end up at Avanti's. So Avanti's in normal, that's two and a half miles if we were to walk there. So that's how big of the wall uh, that Nehemiah is supposed to build going all the way around. And this wall is 40 feet high which is about a telephone pole high or a utility pole high, uh, about four stories. That's how tall uh, this uh, stone wall is supposed to be. And it's supposed to be eight feet thick. So um, this is about eight feet. I'm six feet-ish um, shorter this year than I was last year. But this is about eight feet thick. So that's the scope. Two and a half miles long, 40 feet high, eight feet thick. And so uh, fortunately, we got a couple builders in our congregation this morning. And so uh, I asked them before church, hey, if you were to build, you know, a, a stone wall, you know, two and a half miles long, 40 feet high, eight feet thick, uh, Mike Gilmore, I'm, how long would that take you and your crew? If, if I help, I'm helping, I'm on your crew. How long is it going to take you? 40 years. And I, keep in mind, I said to Mike, you don't get all those tools and, you know, uh, you know, you got to mix your own cement. A truck doesn't just, you know, show up and do all that for you. So, so you know, you and your crew, 40 years. And, and, and Tom Anderson, you, you've built a few things in town, am I right? Yeah, <laughs> okay. Tom, and I told you that you couldn't, you know, give your biblical answer. You're, and you're, you're not a stonemason, right? You would hire that out. But you've done a little bit of masonry work, right? So you know what it's like. How, how long would it take? Several years. Okay. Yeah, several years. Okay. Oh, because, oh, you're better than Gilmore's company. Is that what you're saying? Did you guys hear that? I, I heard a challenge. Oh, okay, okay, okay. you were helping. Oh, Oh, man. That is not in my sermon outline this morning. So long time, right? And then, of course, the question is, we're talking about a wall. We're not talking about the temple. We're not talking about that place where God meets God's people. It's just a wall, folks. So why is Nehemiah being called to build a wall? Not something super exciting like an ark. Not something beautiful and amazing like a temple. A wall, it's, it's that simple. And number one, a wall represents physical protection. It's to protect the people. They were exposed. And they needed protection physically from their enemies. And so this idea of a wall was meant to protect them. But the second thing a wall also does is it provides that mental sense of belonging and connection. Because when you have got some walls around you, all of a sudden you're a group, 
all of a sudden you're a team, all of a sudden you're a tribe, all of a sudden you're a family. It's like, oh, I belong to these people. And so you've got this idea of physical protection. You've got this idea of uh, mental protection. But I think more than anything, Nehemiah is thinking spiritually. I think for Nehemiah, it's not about the wall. I think in Nehemiah's mind, as Jeff talked about at the top of the service today, it really is about spiritual renewal, spiritual rebuilding, because the nation of Israel had lost faith. They had turned their backs on God, and and Nehemiah knew this. And I think he wept not only because the walls of Jerusalem had fallen into disrepair, but because they had turned their backs on God. And so his heart was just full and he's weeping. And I think Nehemiah, more than anything, he was about spiritual renewal. And this this wall really represented or symbolized uh, uh, this whole idea of renewal. So Nehemiah cast this big vision out to the people. In fact, it was an impossible vision. You know, we might be sitting here today thinking about this big wall, but in, in their day and their time, without all the modern tools that we have, it was just people and stuff, no extra equipment. This was a really big vision. This was an impossible vision in their mind. But you know what? God's with them. God's with them because God has confirmed this call with Nehemiah and the people that God was behind this whole plan. We see miracle upon miracle upon miracle, ingredient upon ingredient, ingredient, all just put in the right place at the right time. And have you ever felt like when God gives you a vision or God speaks to you or God tells you something, you're like, you know what, God said it, so uh, this is going to be good. This is going to be smooth sailing. The wind is at my back because God's behind it. I mean, sometimes we think that way, right? I mean, what could go wrong in the story? Verse 19, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What could go wrong? These three guys had it out against Nehemiah and the Israelites. You've heard of the Holy Trinity? This is the hellish trinity. And they are going to make the Israelites hell as they try to rebuild the wall. There's opposition upon opposition. You know, it says they mocked and ridiculed us. That's just the beginning of it, folks. It gets so much worse as you continue to read on in the story of Nehemiah. So I put the fourth ingredient of Nehemiah is opposition. You just got to expect opposition. Now, early on in ministry, I just thought, you know, if I'm in God's plans, you know, if I'm going to work in the church, it's just going to be smooth sailing. If I'm going to serve in ministry, man, it's going to just, God's behind this. It's going to be good. It's going to be easy. God's just going to take care. He's going to put like a big force field bubble around me in the church. Anybody else ever thought that ministry was going to be easy in the church? Yeah, maybe for a minute, right? Until you got in the church, you show up. It's like, man, who invited that person to be on this committee? What a bummer, you know? And, and then there's envy and, you know, I mean, there's just all sorts of things that go on in the life of the church and, and, and you know, the, the whole thing behind this idea of, 
even when we're God doing God's work, as Nehemiah is doing God's work, there is opposition upon opposition upon opposition. You guys have heard of Murphy's Law, right? Murphy's Law? What's Murphy's Law? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, right? Well, what's going on in the story of Nehemiah, and we see this over and over throughout Scripture, is Lucifer's Law. And Lucifer's law is whatever God loves, Satan hates. And Satan will go toe-to-toe with you. Satan will go toe-to-toe with the church. Satan will go toe-to-toe with the ministry because Satan hates what we are about. Satan doesn't want us gathered this morning. When we are working and serving and living in God's will in the life of the church, you have all of a sudden made a decision that you're just going to have a big old bullseye on you. I mean, that's just the way it is. And we need to get used to this idea that there will be opposition as a Jesus follower. There will be opposition as a church person. There will be opposition all around us because Satan hates what we're doing and Satan hates you. He wants to pull you down. And he will use his minions and demons to do whatever it takes for us to tear each other apart to be angry with one another, to get on each other's nerves and just rip ministry. That's what he does. It's his whole purpose in life. And so we've got to expect opposition as we go through life. This is certainly Nehemiah's story. So what does Nehemiah do? He goes to work. He goes to work. And as they work, they're like, ah, we know there's, there's opposition. And they continue to face opposition. And they work, and they face more opposition. And here's uh, seven different oppositions that I came across. Ridicule, wrath, discouragement, fear, internal strife, laziness, lies from the enemy. Those are just seven that I kind of pulled out from the story. I mean, I think these are all things that we can see in our own lives and, and, and frankly, in the life of the church that kind of that get at us that Satan is behind those things. And like, but you know what? We're going to push against that. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going, and the fifth ingredient is action. In spite of the opposition, they just start picking up rocks one after another. Get to work. Let's go. And throughout the rest of the story of Nehemiah, we learn about opposition, but we read about these people who are just picking up rocks and rebuilding the wall. Now, the interesting thing about chapter 3 of Nehemiah is this phrase comes up 16 times over and over and over. If, if you read the, uh, the, the, the book of Nehemiah chapter 3, this phrase comes up next to. So-and-so was next to so-and-so. And this group of people was next to this group of people. And this tribe was next to this tribe. Over and over we hear this idea of people standing alongside one another. They are next to one another. They are working together with one another. And the other interesting thing about chapter 3 is Nehemiah's name never shows up. All the, he was there. But there are all these individuals, all these groups, 38 individuals, 42 groups. It's just filled with names. And there they are next to one another helping each other to build up this wall. I think in many ways, this is the sign of a healthy church. 
a church that's not built on a name, an individual, a person. Sometimes people will come to me and say, hey, Brian, how are things at your church? I'm like, first of all, it's not my church. But I do go to church with a group of really faithful people at Faith Lutheran Church on GE Road. It's awesome. And let me tell you about the ministries. And let me tell you about the people that I get to be next to in ministry. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, the church is not one member, but many members. And then, of course, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes and explains the, the body of Christ and all the parts of the human body. That's who we are. And it's just, he's just kind of laying, casting this vision for what it means to be a team living and serving in ministry and in the body of Christ in the church. The church is a team. We're a family. We're a network. We're, we're people that come together to work alongside one another, to be next to one another. And this is what the Nehemiah and the Israelites are all about. They're like, hey, we're in this together. We're going to be a team and work alongside one another. Mike, how long is that uh, wall going to take you, 40 years? Uh, <laughs> and Tom, you said it's going to take a long time, many years, right? They finished the wall in 52 days. Nehemiah 6.15 says this, On October 2nd, the wall was finished, just 52 days after we began. I think we can all agree there was some serious teamwork going on there. Now, I don't know how many people were a part of building that wall from here to Avanti's, 40 feet tall, 8 feet thick. Probably a lot. But they built this wall. And not only did they build a wall, but there were 10 different gates going around the city that they had to incorporate into it. 52 days. It's absolutely extraordinary. You know, after uh, coming back from sabbatical, some of you have asked me, hey, Brian, what was your favorite part? What was your favorite place that you visited? What was your favorite experience that you saw while you were traveling around Europe? And, you know, my response to most of you has been, you know, I really didn't have a favorite. And you're like, oh, come on, give me a favorite. You must have had a favorite. And I guess maybe if I had to choose a favorite place that I traveled to as we went 10 and a half weeks around Europe, uh, to a bunch of different countries was a place in Germany called Worms. And you're like, what? In fact, it's the place where they had the diet of worms. And you're like, you went to a place where they ate worms? The diet of worms is really a name for the, the, the meeting or the council at Worms, as they say it in German. And after Luther posted the 95 Theses in 1517, he got not water with the Pope and the political people. And they wanted to kill him like they killed Jan Hus a hundred years before. And so the Pope said, we need Martin Luther to show up in Worms and meet the most powerful political leader of the day, Charles V. And so Martin Luther is like, all right, knowing full well that a hundred years prior they burned Hess uh, Huss at the stake for exactly the things that Luther was teaching. So he went to Worms. 
and I got to stand in the shoes, not these shoes, metal shoes of, you know, bronze shoes, I don't know, where Luther stood before Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Emperor, and said, I will not recant. Here I stand, I shall do no other, so help me God. And in his whole mind, in, in, the whole time he's thinking, all right, they're going to light the flames and just burn me. It was this extraordinary moment of courage and speaking God's truth. This authority against the authority of the Pope, of the church. And I love standing there. But even more meaningful for me in visiting, standing in those shoes where Martin Luther stood, was walking down the street a little bit to the Reformation Monument. And this actually, the more I learned about it, really spoke to me. Because there in the middle, of course, is Martin Luther. Standing there, this beacon of the Protestant Reformation. But surrounding Luther, and I think this is one of the most honest statements and monuments of the entire Protestant Reformation, Reformation is you've got four guys sitting around him. Many of them lived hundreds of years before Luther showed up on the scene. And it's this acknowledgement that what Luther did, he could only do because he was standing on the shoulders of these other theologians, these other very, very courageous people. Peter Waldo from France, John Wycliffe from England, Jan Hus from the Czech Republic, and Savonarola from Italy. All those people were persecuted they were killed for their faith, for teaching the exact same stuff that Luther did. Luther didn't come up with this stuff. He borrowed everything he ever taught and preached. This is why I don't mind stealing other, from other preachers. Luther did it all the time. He got all these ideas from these other four spiritual giants, these men who were courageous to stand up and lost their lives because of what they did. All of them were branded heretics. And many of them burned in the fires. But it wasn't just those four guys uh, sitting there around him. See the two guys in the front? That's Phil and Fred. They were powerful political leaders. And you can see the swords they've got. A couple weeks ago when I talked about Jan Hus, one of you asked me, hey, you know, why did Martin Luther not get burned in the stake because of Jan Hus? It's because of those two guys. He had good friends. They were powerful political people, and they protected Luther over and over and over. And they were the guys with the AK-47s when things got really hot. Luther couldn't have done what he did without those theologians. Luther could not have done what he, without those powerful political leaders. But it wasn't just those people. In the back, you're going to see a couple more people. F another Phil. This was Philip Melanchthon. And another guy, a linguist. And I could go on and on and on and tell you about these guys. But what you need to know about them is Luther was a hothead. Luther ran off his mouth all the time. Luther didn't have great emotional intelligence, if you know what I mean. He just said what he thought. And then Melanchthon oftentimes would come behind him and clean up his mess. He, you know, he would, you know, call people names, horrible names. And he would, you know, spew off and spout off. And then Melanchthon would come up behind him and say, I think what Dr. Luther really meant... 
He was like his press secretary, cleaning up all of Luther's mess. If Luther did not have Philip Melanchthon, this brilliant theologian, and someone who did have emotional intelligence, they would have just said, ah, I don't think so. He's just a hothead. I think they would have just said, I'm not listening to that guy. He is an absolute hothead. And I could go on and on of all the people who were involved in the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was just one guy of many. Now, to be clear, he was an important figure. But the Protestant Reformation, make no mistake about it, it would not have happened without a team. A group of people who lived long before Luther, who were courageous long before Luther. A group of people who he had gifted and talented around him. Many of them who were even smarter than he was. He had this group of people around him who protected him at every level. And then, and then you've got Gutenberg and the Bible and the printing press. Hello, Luther never could have done what he did without the printing press. No way, folks. I mean, do you see how all the ingredients are coming together to, to just the right place in 1517? I mean, you, you couldn't like plan this stuff out. God was behind all these people, all these events, all these circumstances, putting it all together just like the red cake. You take one person out. Luther's dead. You take one person out, he just gets dismissed. You take one person out and you don't have a bible you know that can be read by the masses of people all the ingredients mattered in the order that they were at the in the order in which they happened i've titled this sermon nehemiah ingredients for teamwork wait i could easily just call this you know martin luther ingredients for teamwork and the reason i share that story with you is this is how god works god works in teams God works through the church. Each one of you matter. I think some of my greatest frustration as a pastor in the life of the church is so many people in the life of the church think they just don't matter. They're just not talented enough. They just don't have what it takes. And so maybe, you know, you feel like you, your role in the life of the church is to cheer on the professionals, cheer on, you know, those who are serving in leadership, cheer on spectators, if you will. Your job in the church, in the family of God, is to be a part of a team. And so I just want to close by asking you, how are you serving on our team, on Team Jesus? Team Jesus through Faith Lutheran Church. How are you engaged in the life of the ministry? How are you stepping out of your comfort zone, hearing God's voice, in your life? How are you collaborating with other people in the congregation? Because I think when God brings, God has brought us together for a purpose. And we've got, we got work to do, folks. Just like Nehemiah, and just as important as what Martin Luther did, because the world still needs a reformation. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who uses teams. Oh, Lord, you certainly use individuals, but usually those individuals like Nehemiah, like Martin Luther, like so many others throughout Scripture, they just got the name recognition. God, you use lots and lots of people, nameless people, sometimes faceless people, 
but people with extraordinary gifts. And so Lord, help us to be a team. Help us to do our part. Help us to engage because each one of us matters. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.